some of those things. And you can teach me the jump cut, the crossover step, the, you know, the plant and go, the, you know, I, you know, the three step, the triangle, the goose, all the fancy things we talk about. But at the end of the day, like I have to learn to put that into practice at variable speeds and variable timings. And my cues for that are spatial, like based on what I'm, what I'm seeing, what I'm reading, how fast I'm moving, how fast you're moving and what my capabilities are. Well, that makes it sound really confusing. Like it's unlearnable. We go, no, it's actually really, really learnable. Mm-hmm. You know what you got to do? You got to do it. Like you got to, <laughs> yeah. like we should be every practice for every sport should be having some sort of one-on-one box drill where it's like you beat that person, you try to mm-hmm. stay in front of them and that's it. And like, we should be doing that. I think in every sport, every day, like we just, people just need repetitions. That was Andy Ryland. And you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Lost Empire Herbs, and I want to share with you how to get a free bag of pine pollen through Lost Empire here today. Quickly first, I used to think herbs was just Jinko biloba you got at the drugstore, but after being introduced to compounds such as the Phoenix Formula through Lost Empire, I've been a regular consumer of Lost Empire Herbs for over four years now. The Phoenix Formula instantly changed my viewpoint on herbalism. I was literally buzzing with energy after my first dose. Within two weeks, I was noticing strength improvements in the weight room. And it's been fun expanding my herbalism regime to different things throughout the Lost Empire Herb Store. In Phoenix Formula in particular, along with Shiliagit, which is a very popular herb for strength and performance, you also have pine pollen, which is a superfood. It offers a variety of energy, health, and performance benefits. And you can grab that free bag of pine pollen with the modest cost of shipping by heading to justflypinepollen.com. If you want to check out other herbs that I enjoy through Lost Empire, you can head to lostempireherbs slash justfly and grab 15% off your order. I can't recommend Lost Empire enough, and I really enjoy the fact that I've been able to partner with them through this podcast for as long as I have. So be sure to check that out. Let's get on to the rest of the show. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Thanks for being here. I'm excited to get this show going and welcome back Andy Ryland to the podcast. He was a guest way back on episode 170 where he spoke on a humans first, athlete second, and specialist third approach to athlete development. Andy is the senior manager of education and training at USA Football. He's been there since 2010. Andy has consulted with programs at every level of competition and is an expert on the developmental and skill-building process for athletes. In the world of sport, things can get very dissected and compartmentalized, and I think it's always good to be making connections between the skill-building pieces and more of the raw physical pieces. The more we can zoom out, I believe the better our intuition can get in that total process of athlete development. On today's episode, Andy digs into key points on the art of athletic skill-building. A primary piece of this is how he runs the whole part-whole system, which can be applied to football and team sports. It can also be applied to speed training or more raw athletic movement qualities. It can be taken into the weight room. And you will also discuss microdosing of skills or prescriptive extras in the scope of sport. He'll cover key aspects of improving agility, game speed. He'll talk about creativity and intuition in coaching and much more. It's awesome talking to Andy. I love seeing his lens on athletic development. And I'm excited to get you guys this show. Let's get to episode 366 here with coach Andy Ryland. 
Andy, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you here. And you know, you were just mentioning you had started watching, uh, is it a new American Gladiators series or something? I, or is it rerun? Or I wasn't sure, but you were, you were talking about yeah, that here. So there's, a there's a documentary on the original American Gladiators. And it was, I think it was on HBO, but I caught like the last couple of episodes in a hotel traveling for work, like always. And then it just came to Netflix. So I started the first episode last night, fell asleep, didn't get to finish the episode, but it's like this, the background of American Gladiators. And actually what's really interesting is the first episode, they're talking about the pilot and how like the games they did in the pilot were terrible, but they were just like making them up as they went and they were trying to figure it out and then they got it sold. And then they like, you know, they, you bring in some other people in minds and eventually it became like the games that we know as American Gladiators, if you're an adult of our age who grew up with that. But it was just kind of really interesting where we were talking about Powerball from Jeremy Fresh. But this first episode, they talk about, like I said, like they invented these games and some of them worked and some of them didn't, but they were trying to create the show and how ridiculous the pilot was because the games were so bad. But then ultimately you look at the final product and there's some really cool, really cool things in there. Like, you know, I shoot as a kid, uh, tell me you didn't want to do the obstacle course. So like that creative process of creating games and what works and what doesn't like is, uh, is really brought to life. And it's, you know, just kind of funny to see it through this lens of my, my childhood memories. Yeah. Same here. I was going to ask what, um, and I'll have to watch it, but like what some of the, the failed games were, I mean, it just fits with anything in business and life. You have to fail and you have to do things that didn't work out before you can find those things that stick and kind of, I mean, I think too, the things that kind of just resonate with us as well, just from a, a basis of play. But do you remember some of the ones that they did that didn't work out? So the the original Powerball, and this will actually be funny because of like, you'll see this in strength and conditioning quite a bit, but the original Powerball, instead of like blocking and tackling to keep them away from the goal, they were in the harnesses, you know? And so that like, as the ball carrier ran this way, they, the gladiator would run the opposite direction you know and like the the harness pull and you'll see like you said in a lot of off seasons guys doing those harness pulls as competitions or finishers or whatever and so the original one it was a little less contact and a little more about pulling and driving eventually it became what it became they, they had a wacky one in where which like uh the contestants wore a velcro suit and like the gladiators were throwing them like and they bounced off of these velcro walls and if they got stuck like Supposedly, that's how many points they got. And so there's like good places to get stuck and bad places to get stuck as the gladiator guy is chucking this poor little dude around the scene. Uh, they had one on the trampoline, which is like a game my daughters would play, but they were trying to collect foam pieces off of the trampoline while the gladiator was b- jumping on the mat to make everything bounce around and hard to grab. But then there was also like a handle you could pull and that would like shoot the contestant up in the air because it was attached to a bungee and i mean just wild wild stuff you know like they but trying to figure out hey how do we make this competition and then you know like i you know i don't know who came up with human cannonball in the end you know where they (laughs) swing and smash each other but it was like it was just an evolution of of trying to do stuff and who would have known that the velcro suit game didn't uh didn't make it to the finals (laughs) <laughs> the Velcro, I feel like that the Velcro suit thing is kind of written into our collective unconscious a little bit because I saw something like that, like that in Jackass where they like jumped off a trampoline and there was a truck going by and 
Yeah. That they had like a suit, a sticky suit and were trying to stick onto the truck or something like that. But I also kind of feel like the, the writers of the show, the, the gladiators, you'd think must be like, hey, can we do this? Can we try this with the contestants or something like that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm just chucking this dude around who's like on a bungee. So like it made it even easier to toss around. And it didn't work because no one stuck to the Velcro suit. They just ended up banging off the wall in this little contraption of a game. So, but like all coaches, right, we've all tried drills or activities that either needed a tweak or or went in the trash pile fairly quick. Yeah, even in, even in just the sake of raw speed training and not even like more open ended play games and reacting. Chris Corfus was just talking on the last podcast about how many practices he would try something and on the way back he's like oh that just didn't that didn't work but he it was it's the exploration that you have to be willing to explore things and be creative and then you go was that a good idea was it not a good idea but maybe i could even skip forward a few questions in the sense of you had mentioned and i think this could go this could go for anything i think this could go for sports skill or even strength and conditioning because i'll do this in the warm-ups all the time where it's more of a a little more creative, open-ended warm-up. We'll, we'll start with a few parameters. I know what the eventual goal of the session is going to be from a raw strength perspective, but how we get there is not 100% fixed. <laughs> and I was going to ask you how what your thought is on just in general, if you're doing skill work, skill development, team development play, what your thoughts are in terms of like creativity and going with intuition versus having more of a set structural framework for practice. Yeah, and I think it's a really interesting question because, you know, if you'll, like, I think if you go to Wooden's, not his pyramid, but his coach, eight principles of coaching, like, never change the practice plan is one of them. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, you've done all the work, you've thought about it, and you've changed it. But, like, and if you see something that's wrong, like, just put it in the next day's practice plan. And I think a lot of people are, feel very much similar to that. They like the structure. It adds some comfort to it. I think for me, there's like a great space kind of in between that, that keeps people happy where you're like, you're programming the space. So it's not like you're completely going off script, but you're programming the, the space and specifically for skills. And, and again, I work mostly in the tackle. So it like, it makes a lot of sense, but I'm a huge whole part, whole guy. And I'll be the first to tell you the part aspect is never scripted. Mm. Because it's like, we're doing to do this, you know, a moderate level tackle activity or, or a high level tackle activity. And then we're going to do this kind of coaching intervention. We're going to go do the part, right? We're going to strip it down a little bit. I love the open-ended skill stuff, you know, as much as anybody. But sometimes there's some time to get back to some technique or reminder of a few little KPIs or things like that. And so that part aspect of whole part whole is always open-ended. You know, it's like if our arms are terrible, if our leg drive is terrible, if our strike accuracy is terrible, well, that's going to be my part. And I'm going to be creative and adaptive and read the players on that day and try to, that's going to be the part. So like for me, that's a great example of, I use a whole part, whole system for a five minute block of practice, a 10 minute block practice, whatever it is. I know what I want to get to. But I'm also going to read like, hey, the first three minutes we go through, I'm reading it and I'm totally adjusting on the fly to like, I, our arms are terrible today, boys. Like we're going to this drill. We're going to get two quick minutes of this. Here's our reminders, like feel that pattern. You know what I mean? Every, you know, understand what we're looking for. Now let's go put it back in the full drill again. And so I think something like that can be, you know, really useful. We're even in a team situation. 
you know, you're creating like, uh, you know, I don't know, I have a 20 minute team block. And in between there, there, you know, there's like a five minute corrections period where I don't know going into practice what we're going to need to fix. But we're going to run some plays. We're going to do some stuff. And it could be, again, any sport, soccer, basketball, football, lacrosse. But all of a sudden, I'm seeing like our, our picks are terrible or our cuts through, you know what I mean? And so then we're going to do that little micro dose coaching intervention on that thing. And if I'm doing a really good job, my coaching intervention part aspect is going to be not like some super stereotyped copy and paste drill that's been done since the dawn of time. It's who are my athletes? What are they struggling with? What is the situation that we're, they're struggling with in it? And then how can I kind of replicate replicate that before we go back into the full thing? So I like, I guess it's structure and, you know, that gives you a base of, of kind of calmness and, and I know where we're going. But also like there's blocks where I know my coach's eye and my problem solving capabilities are going to be highly needed and are going to dictate what this three minute block is, what that five minute block is and what we work on here at the end of the day. Yeah, that definitely makes good sense. It makes me think too. I I mean, I know with my track and field background in coaching and it's not, this isn't like football or basketball per se, but even in something like coaching the javelin throw, I would commonly find myself, the, the hole, it would be the throw. And then in between throws, I would, I would put together, I'd be like, okay, this athlete or this throw look like that. Hey, uh, why don't you go ahead and do this specific drill for, you know, 10 or 15 reps. And then before you go do yeah. your next throw again, it was very, very open-ended. It's not scripted. It's just, Hey, here's what I saw on the competition day. And that's, a, it's a little bit different, I think, in track versus, uh, a sport with a lot more chaos to it and, and moving parts to it. But that was a simple way that I yeah, would put that I think together. that's a great example, though, because, you know, I think two different athletes in, you know, in, in an event, it could be the run up, it could be kind of that, that torque and, you know, the, the hip shoulder aspect, or it could be something with your arm and your release. And so it's like, what three individuals need is very different. And so, again, large groups can be difficult. But if I have a manageable number, you know, like, well, I can pair them up. Hey, you guys, you two are the release group. You two are the run-up group. And and I want you to come over here with me and we're going to work on that that torque and that, you know, uh, that hip loading or whatever it is. And it's like those little micro corrections, little micro scales, you know, can very easily be prescriptive within that. And then to your point, like, hey, we do the drills. Like now you feel it in your hips now, like you kind of got that anchored in. All right, let's have a couple more throws. See if you can find it within the full thing again. And then beautiful. Hey, thumbs up, thumbs down. Do we need more? Do we, can we move on to some, something different? So I think it works in a lot of sports where I can see the same thing. Like we're, you know, we're doing a start and it's like someone's heel recovery versus someone else's arms. You know what I mean? It's like, all right, cool. Here's your little, you said your micro skills, your fix yeah. and that whole part, whole style. Does it have to be written on your practice plan with the specific times? Or is it just the idea that like, Again, coming from that skill acquisition side, I think me and you both like we like it bigger and more open, and then just those little bite-sized pieces, and then we come back to it. I, I really think that's that's uh, the way to go. And a lot of coaches that I've spoke to have, have really bought into it, where they're like, "Oh my gosh, that makes total sense." Yeah. Where it's like, "Yeah, I, maybe in football, I watched the film and I know what we did wrong last game, so I'm thinking I want to work on those." But then also, there's kind of those day-to-day week-to-week performances where it's like something else slides off you know what i mean we're focused so much on thing one that now i'm not happy with thing two all right cool we have these great little micro dose opportunities a hundred percent like i said i think the coach's eye is the most important factor in it where it's like 
if I can see, especially live, like in our team sports, when we always want to go back to the film and correct it later that evening. But it's like, if I can see it live and make those little micro adjustments and give those little coaching interventions, if you will, like, I think you're, you're much better off making, making progress on the day. Yeah, I agree that I think what you're saying too, does highlight. I mean, I look at all iterations of sport and movement sharing a same common philosophy, but I do think something like, let's say strength and conditioning versus sport. Sport is more chaotic by nature than doing a deadlift or something like that. I think that, uh, I mean, and you can be, you can be doing, like you could do like, you know, various correctives in between main lifts and the weight room, even for the sake of something I, I would say is more discreet, let's say speed, because I think that's a little bit more applicable if we're talking about raw outputs, like you know, with the Chris Corfus to go back to his podcast, I think he had so many good ideas with what he was talking about that I got my wheels turning, but he was, he would have his athletes do a core sprint and then they do their weakness in between. And it wasn't everyone didn't do the same drill for their weakness. And that was so key. It's like, all right, here's my stompers. Here's my slicers. Uh, the stompers are doing this drill. The slicers are doing this one. And it was also in higher reps. So like the main, the main speed uh, movement might've been shorter, but then the weakness builder was longer. And so it, it just allowed people to get a lot of reps in for their weakness. And I think in the gym or for me, how I treat things in the weight room is more from the perspective of because it's it's a little different than sport, I more look at it a lot of times in terms of the athlete's attention and engagement. That's how I'm using my creativity there is like, okay, is this series of drills, maybe we're doing like some dodges or dodging action with the doll rod, they're jumping over the doll rod, or they're ducking under it, or they're doing different movements, they're doing rolls over it. Okay, they're getting a little bit bored with this one, let's advance them to the next tier that's getting them a little bit closer to the main lifts we're going to be doing. So, it's that's more where I think it works in that in that more generalized aspect for me. I mean, I just think skill development and creativity and intuition can go pretty much any anywhere you are working with athletes. It can go anywhere. So I'm always trying to to draw all those those places out. But I do I do find it interesting how you're talking about John Wooden and obviously amazing, brilliant, legendary coach, right? But talking about oh, it should be scripted. But I think sometimes I mean we all have we all have different personalities too. Some of us are more comfortable in chaos. Some of us are more scripted by, I think a lot of times people who are more scripted maybe become strength coaches as opposed to sport coaches, but I'm not sure. I, I don't think I've talked to enough people in that regards, but it is, it is interesting to think about that. I, I just, I do think about what Sam Portland had said about coaching being a conversation. I think regardless of what the medium you are in, coaching is a conversation. If you wrote it all ahead of time and there's never a change, then it's not a conversation anymore. So I'd be curious to no, see that Wooden's practice too. And maybe there's some nuances that went outside of that, you know, that were, were diff much different in that regard. Yeah. I think you're, you're spot on where it's like they're, you know, in the conversation and it goes back to kind of the coach's eye where your visual cues, like that's the information oftentimes you're getting back from the athlete. Now, obviously we hope you're having open relationships or developing good things, all that where you can talk back and forth, how you feeling today, what's this and that. But, you know, the old, like the warm up is the best, you know, uh, movement screen kind of idea. Like if you're seeing those things, but it's not just the warm up, like it, it's also the performance on the day, you know, like where I think about myself as I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting older now, right? Like I can go into the gym and let's, I have a deadlift day, which is going to be trap bar for me because I'm old and my back doesn't like it. But like, some days, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I'm really struggling to get down in my hips. And some days I feel like I'm, you know, it's my, my back is the issue. So it's like those little correctives or what I'm doing in between sets, like, yeah, absolutely is different day to day. Because it's like, I don't know, maybe I went for a hike over the weekend with with the kids. 
and it's like my calves are just really tight and I, you know, I feel like that's my issue, you know? And so it's like, well, yeah, there's not necessarily one thing. Sometimes you just gotta, you gotta feel it or you gotta see it and you gotta work on some different stuff. But I'll throw another one out there where you were talking about the, the Chris Corfus correctives. So my mentor, Richie Gray is, is a guy who has worked in professional international rugby for, for ages now. And he talked about, they had a thing where they had prescriptive extras. They called them work-ons, but every athlete had their work-ons that fit their game. And the simple rule was they put out like a set of bags, like on the kind of right by the entrance to the field. And it was kind of like a buy-in, buy-out in the kind of the strength and conditioning world or whatever. But their rule was you can't pass the bags. And every athlete had like their three or four drills and they were supposed to get like, I don't know, five to 10 reps or three uh, every day of their particular weaknesses. So when they jogged out on the field before practice, they'd find a partner and they just hit, you know, their little work-ons that I need to work on. And we took that to football and we published it in some of our tackle materials, but it's like, you know, it's a great way to get with your players and, and like do some individual evaluation, get some kind of prescriptive extras and just say like, okay, each day, you know what I mean? Like if you gave every player two to three drills and three to five reps, like not anything that's gonna throw off the balance of practice, and said, before or after practice, I want you to find a partner and do these things. And obviously, I'm using three to five because we're talking about a, a contact scale here. Uh, but like you need to do low tackle on the bag, five reps. And I want you to do this open field tracking, you know, this and then players are just kind of mixing and matching. And it's like, oh, who else is in the open field group? Oh, OK, yeah, yeah. Come over here. I'm with you. Oh, you're in the power group. Like then you partner up with Billy and you just kind of do do your work and it's really simple, you know, because as, as a coach, you're not having to do the whole team. You just do your little position group. You give everybody three to five reps and they just find those extra spaces in between uh, before after practice to do the work. And I have a buddy who who coaches out in Oregon who puts the, all the equipment out in the center field, even like right where the logo is. And they have their they just set their camera on the on the logo and the secret. Don't tell him. But he says he doesn't check it. He just tells them that it's like that. They, you know, they start before one practice. When the student goes up there, they start the camera and everybody just filters through. And as they come out at different times, they just get their reps in. And so that's how they do their kind of individual work. And I think it goes right into that S&C side of like, you know, we typically have the knee group, the hip group, the shoulder group. But th there's also space for fillers and changes and day to days on like what, you know, what you might need to do or where you're feeling. It makes me think too about Mark McLaughlin was talking about, I think it was zone, maybe it was like zone zero. It wasn't block zero. It was like zone zero. Like you have the heart rates like zone one, two, three, four, five. And he was talking about, I believe it was zone zero in the sense of like, you could just say instead of sitting there between sets in the gym, walking or something. But I think about, I guess, uh, but I think that could be, I think there was other applications of it as well, uh, far beyond walking. But I think about, well, if you want to really maximize the use of all your time, and I do think sometimes just sitting around, you know, it depends on the context for sure. I think in, in the gym, a different context, more likely, you know, if you're all just sitting around waiting, uh, waiting to lift a heavy weight, I think that's a little bit different than something that is very specifically attuned to skill and chaos and, and uh, more that fine skill building. But I, I look at it like kind of like, you know, if you compare, like Ethan Reeve talked about the gym as he sees the gym through the eyes of a wrestling coach. I often see it through the eyes of a track coach and I try to coach you know, coaching youth soccer as well and just different sport variations is really enjoyable. But I do think that if the ultimate goal of a session is skill building the same way you perceive it when you play, then you're always going to want to be doing something. And, and if nothing else, kind of staying in 
that mental space too of not checking out. Like having something to do is going to keep you in that mental space where you aren't checking out of it and you're always you're always, um, maybe you're a higher proportion of staying in flow state as well, just always kind of having something that's task-oriented in front of you. It's funny you say that because for me, and just me personally, like I've always, I came from a, a high-intensity lifting program in college, you know, the one set failure oh, yeah. had a deal. And so I've always struggled with rest times. Like, and so if I had like a three-minute rest prescribed, I would be going nuts. Like, <laughs> you know, when I first made the transition. And so, like, I would always find myself like, okay, I have heavy squat, then I have, you know, a four minute rest and another heavy squat at two minutes, I'd be like doing some body weight reps where I'm like grooving my technique and like doing that. And part of it was like, I felt like it was too long to to wait and I just wanted to bend my knees a little bit, you know, but in some other sense, I'm also like, maybe there is some like, you know, some extra learning, some micro reps, I'm grooving that technique. Yes, it's completely different as soon as I put that you know, big weight on my shoulder, but like, you know, there's things in there that, that you can do. I, I've used the example of like the, the traditional on-field max speed, you know, exposure, you know, hamstring kind of training, you know, hey, we got to hit our max speed once a week to protect those hamstrings. But that means we're going to take those those long rests. And I was always like, well, that rest doesn't have to be like complete rest. And if I'm if I'm doing it really well, there's a great integration with with the sport coach where like we could do some tactical lectures, if you will, but like we could walk around the field. So if I do my sprint and I have a, I don't know, a four minute rest, a six minute rest, if I'm a soccer coach, like we could go down into our defensive zone and be like, okay, like when we're here, you know, like our exit strategy is X, Y, Z and blah, blah, blah. And then we walk over to the midfield and we're saying, you know, defensive side of the midfield, you know, like we're thinking this, we, we want to take some chances. We're going to play the long ball. Oh, okay. Here we guys go one minute till your next sprint. We walk down, we hit our max effort. Then we walk into the attacking zone and we talk about what our plan is. So it's like, you can use that as a like tactical teaching for your game upcoming. Like you don't just have to, to stand there. Football, it works great. Like you in between those max effort sprints, like why not? again, walking, resting, but why not align in your formations? Why not talk through yeah. like, okay, when here and then they motion, we were going to check to this coverage. So it's like the idea that it has to be one thing and that we can't fill those spaces with some more creativity or some learning. And I remember, oh gosh, it was a podcast that may have been a Pacey performance podcast way back, but like uh, they were talking to some rugby coaches and they would talk about trying to steal skill reps in the gym. And so they would talk to the SNCs about like, if this activity is not going to fatigue the athlete and take away from the performance, like, would you mind if we stole some, some reps? So like in between a heavy squat, they may do like a stationary passing drill yeah. where they're going to, each guy's going to get 15 passes off both right and left hand. And like, it's not going to take away from the lower body fatigue and they're still going to have great power output, but like we can use that rest time as a little, a little mini skill session. And then we, okay, it's upper body day. We don't want to do this, but like we can, we can do X and try how they tried to work this program. And I wish I remembered which one of the teams was one of the super rugby teams out of Australia. And I, I found it a really interesting concept of like, you know, why, why can't we do yeah. um, non-competing like skill exercises in between those things? If we felt like it could, we can manage the fatigue of fatigue effectively. Yeah. I love that. It And it's, it's kind of funny because I think and so often things are siloed out so that 
Like, I think in the NCAA, you probably like couldn't do that. I don't think you would be allowed to do like football reps in between the, you know, whatever the rules are, right? Like there's, there's so much separation a lot of times in that. But I think about, well, track and field, that's always right there because a lot of track stuff is also weight room stuff, technically. Like, like you could do oh, Olympic yeah. lifts and bounding variations and superset that or even light. I, a lot of times I'll superset Olympic stuff with light bounding variations just to keep, just to kind of keep, well, one, I think it is just, it's just a natural good pair. But it also always kind of keeps in your mind of stay elastic, stay light, stay rhythmic. You know, yes. if you're a jumper, that's it. And one of the things that I really liked, and and I think in so many ways, this is, it's hard to explain this. It's something you kind of have to experience more. But when I went to Rafe Kelly's return to the source retreat, they talked about, and I think this was Aaron Cantor, who is one of the EMP coaches. We did a lot of like roughhousing stuff. And within the roughhousing, they talked about the inner game and the outer game. And I think so often we only look at the outer game, like the big external thing that we address more intellectually versus the inner game are like more the subtle things that we don't, we can't just think our way through. We can't just put logic in our head and just straight up think our way through it. There has to be, and I think that's the distinguishing feature of so many elite athletes. They can do what you can't, not because they're thinking about it more, (laughs) they just have it. Something is in their inner game that they have. Of course, they have physical gifts too, and various physical, you know, maybe you know, arm lengths and structures and things that are really important. But at the end of the day, there's those subtle inner nuances that you can't just intellectualize as well. I do think like the strategy, talking about formation strategy. I guess I get back to Richard Ashevas was talking about like the different ways you go about a workout. You have the the the, the strategy, which is intellectualizing, but then you also have like a more emotional part of it that you get to like it working out. It might be like hit, like when you're really getting into deep sets, you're not strategizing now. You're 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 in a kind of a more of a fight mode, and it's more emotional. But uh, it is needless to say, I was just as you were talking, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of going all over the place. But I was thinking, it's like there's always this interplay or wave. Everything is based off a wave, and I think the wave, a, a really helpful wave, as I've seen it is is a wave that waves between the outer game, the big external thing, and then something that waves down into more of the inner game that allows you to work with that part of your system and then go back to the outer game. And, you know, is something as simple as like a physical output, like a sprint or jump and a bound, like something more like an explosive Olympic lifts, more outer, something that's more subtle, like a higher rep bounding, the for fluidity is more inner. Um, I'll do the same thing with like three-way hip circles and a hex deadlift, just stuff like that. But You just got me thinking about that because I I think that we, I think we do naturally do that. I've seen correctives, you know, correctives are given all the time between like main lifts and things like that. But I also think there's something that goes deeper than we'll just do this corrective. There's also like a chance to kind of work a different part of your mental structure as well, if that makes sense. No. And so it's like a simple example, right? But in football, there's like these little punching machines. It's like a little body. Uh, and it attaches to a power rack and they're, they're really pretty common and like it would be very common for a football workout that like in between some of your sets that you're going to go over and you're going to you're going to get your strikes but it in the same sense it's still that gross outer high level and it's like well you, but you also have like 60 people in the room you know you could partner up and do like a little a little refitting a little hand battle you know what i mean like especially if the guys are are mature enough like in their development that they can you know manage tempo a little bit like it doesn't have to be a one-on-one blocking drill but you can like do a ton of really cool stuff and for me within the contact space one of the things i value most is just feel proprioception you know what i mean like i think we talked about last time inside of the contact you know like when i'm engaged with you 
very little of the information I'm getting is visual. It's a lot of it is is feel. Like, are you trying to push me straight back or are you trying to turn my shoulders and twist me one way or the other to open up a, a gap or a hole? And how I brace and fight is going to be based on not just that your hands are on me, but which way are you trying to turn me and or push me? And so I have to adjust my lower body, my brace angles to be able to push back and meet force with force and, and fight that. Well, how do I develop or how do I find ways to steal lots of reps of people leaning on me? So I'm developing a feel for where these angles are. And, and it's not just like two people running straight into each other. Cause again, am I trying to drive you back? Am I trying to end up working my hips and move you laterally? Or am I trying to twist you? That's three different aspects I have within that one collision. And so I value that proprioception feel so much that I think a lot of the prep for contact stuff now is that like I've been preaching. It's just based on like, because of the off season rules and we're not supposed to do football activities, but I can still expose you to that rough housing environment. And then obviously with the kids, like just that rough housing is such like a robust stimulus. You know what I mean? Like it's just so good for that global development where it's like, you need interacting with another human being. You need how to learn, learn how to be strong versus an outside force. You need to learn how to be balanced and agile versus an outside force. Like in a lot of ass football, a lot of sports could be a soccer player who's trying to get cut off a basketball player, you know, trying to turn the corner and get uh, to the hoop or a football player in contact. Can you remain athletic versus this outside force, this person leaning on you, you know, whether it's football and I can punch you or it's basketball or soccer and I have to use the hips. How do I stay athletic around these forces? Well, that's one of those things that like you, I can tell you that, but like that's conceptualizing it is not anywhere close to being able to do it. And so at some point we just need to create opportunities for you to find that idea within your own body. I can plant the seed, you know what I mean? And maybe I can give you some ideas of things that have helped in the past, or there are some practices that seem to be pretty successful. But even if I do a great job teaching it, there's going to be this phase of you having to learn it in your own body. You have to take those words and put them into actions. And then those actions are going to be variable based on how aggressive or non-aggressive or big or strong or small the person who's pushing you is. And what's the appropriate reaction? Well, you know, the best way, like, I can't, I can't coach that from the press box. Like you have to feel that. And therefore I want to build lots of pattern recognition, lots of a database, all that kind of good stuff. Let's get reps. Let's, you know, let's build it so that you feel these things and know. And to your point now, I'm not consciously thinking about it. Like I'm just feeling opportunities and then, and then taking them as they come without consciously, you know, having to say like, Oh, it's a gap, B gap, boom here. It's like, Oh no, there's the force. That's actually really weak. I can walk right through that. I'm just going to go ahead and take it. You know, I don't think that, but that's after the play. That's probably what I'm, you know, kind of reconciling to myself as why I did that. You got me thinking now, and you mentioned you mentioned the rough housing with the younger athletes. I'd like to ask you how you you integrate that. But I had this thought: my my son is uh, I coached my son's soccer team. He just turned five, and I was like, well, if I'm still coaching it you know, his boys team when they're seven or eight, what if we just like played soccer and then wrestled and then played soccer and wrestled? Like, but I don't think you could, I don't think the league would let me do that, but that would be amazing. <laughs> and then I wonder what their playing style would end up being. But uh, yeah, that could be a, I, I'm sure that I'm curious, like, yeah, with football, uh, how do you integrate roughhousing with the younger athletes? And then how does that progress uh, up through their older yeah. ages? So 
And I, I think this goes back to some of that earlier conversation about the, the structuralism is that like, not sounding like the grumpy old guy, but like with less free play opportunities, I think youth coaches and we could go up as far as you need based on the developmental abilities of your athletes, but coaches sometimes have to manufacture those free play opportunities that helped develop general skills in the past. And I, I always use the example of like, if you look at these olden football films, like back in the day, like they were doing a lot of calisthenics, you know, like the old monkey rolls and bear, you know, mm -hmm. and they're, they're doing their, their jumps and their hops and their quarter turns. Like there's a lot of calisthenic type type, type stuff in there. But then you realize those athletes also like, weren't really full-time professionals like a lot of them had off-season jobs and were selling cars or working you know at the local school or whatever and then they showed up for camp even though they were playing in the nfl i think at some point in professionalism those things got demonized as not football specific and when athletes maybe were part of these higher level year-round training programs they did come in with the movement skills and movement bases where like you could spend more time on skills because those other buckets were being filled by like this really year round year round training. I start to worry and I uh, that like our modern society for all kinds of reasons, PE, gym class, you know, we tend to be a little more litigious. Parents don't want their kids doing certain activities on the playground. You know, the idea that maybe we're just going to kick our kids out at nine o'clock in the morning and tell them don't come home till lunch, just go play you know, like that we don't do that. We, we got to keep an eye on him that they've lost those free play opportunities. Meaning when they get to sport, we go, Oh, that's not football specific. But if they don't have the, the movement movement kind of mm -hmm. foundations, the movement database that past generations had, then it's very specific to their, their development. And so I believe all youth coaches now like really have to spend some time doing that in our official USA football practice plans. There's a five to 10 minute period every day where we call athlete development, where it's jumping, it's cutting, it's landing, it's grappling, it's tumbling, it's rolling. It's something in that general skill thing where we're like, we're investing time in the underpinning physical qualities that are actually going to help them learn the skill later on because they have some movement capacities uh, within the contact stuff. Like, you know, we, you, like, I'm a big fan of obviously crawling and tumbling, um, contact sport you need to have tools and methods and be confident in going to the ground like if you're uncomfortable going to the ground there's going to be a lot of situations that you choose not to engage in in the sport maybe it's a shortstop diving for a ground ball maybe it's a soccer player like you know really going into a tackle sliding there's a football player who's like you know what i'm going to stay out of that pile because i don't like what happens at the end of this thing well, if I have the tools and some strategies and I'm comfortable going to ground in a multitude of ways, guess what? I'll look much more aggressive, you know, because I'm like, I I can handle it. I know what's going to come. And if I go down, I'm going to be able to tumble or I'm going to be able to judo fall. or I'm going to be able to parachute fall. Like I have a tool to do it. So love the tumbling because we we do that. Crawling, just obviously core strength, uh, great shoulder work, great cross crawl pattern stuff. I'm big on it for the core core aspects and not just core strength and core stability, but in a contact sports, two of the traits that I think are most important and most underrated and talked about is like that spinal awareness and then like postural, you know, like manipulation. So if, if I can't feel when my, you know, my back is flat or my black is rounded or my back is arched, 
like your coaching cues don't matter. Like that kid is in that terrible position and you're like, no, make your back flat. He thinks it is because he can't feel the difference between those three positions. Well, so I need to get him really integrated into those things. And crawling tends to put us in some challenging postural positions where we're learning what flat feels like, what strong and solid feels like, or when I start to fall apart and it gets wonky. And so I really value that because I think it supports all the safety teaching later about head, neck, spine, body positions as we enter the contact. And then the grappling aspect, I mean, to really make it short, any push-pull game is going to be massive for kids working on like dynamic balance versus outside forces, psychologically getting comfortable inside other people's personal spaces, being able to give and receive forces. And hopefully like for as we higher level, can I give and receive forces without, you know, like overextending or throwing myself out of posture? You know, again, the analogy, like I have this great overhand right as a boxer, but if every time I throw it, I'm completely out of balance and fully elongated and, you know what I mean? Like in a terrible position, then I get caught with a counter every time and that's not real good. So can I use these push pull forces and keep in good positions so that I can quickly engage in the next activity. So it could be something as simple as like, you know, standing across from each other on the line and we grasp hands in any number of different ways, grasp wrists, you know, whatever. And you have to try to pull your partner across the line or you have to try to push, you know, yourself across the line and they have to push back. And we may do it hand to hand. We may do it hand to body. We may say, okay, now you're only allowed to use one hand. Uh, now you can't use any hands. It's all shoulder and chest. And you have to learn to use your body to manipulate another body. We're going to do it side to side. We're going to do it back to back. We're just getting in these push pull battles, like to keep it as simple as possible. Let your imagination run wild in which I have to generate force. I have to feel force and brace against it to hold my position. Or I have to find the ability to like squeeze isometrically, fight that force and not break down in postures, you know, I start to learn things really quickly about, oh, if my feet are directly under me when someone's pushing me, like I have a tendency to go back. If I can get my feet back and create a little bit of positive shin angle, guess what? I can lean against that and hold myself here pretty good. So we're going to do a lot of a lot of that. And then for our tackle sports specifically, like the ability to control another human being with your arms, you know, kind of the traditional wrap up aspect of a tackle we we call it clamp because it sounds cool and mm -hmm. you know rah, like squeeze and crush and all that kind of stuff kids like it but you know learning to control someone with my arms for sports that allow it jujitsu wrestling judo re uh, rugby football then we'll add in that aspect whereas if i'm just working with say a soccer basketball player we're probably not going to use our arms quite as much in the sports specific side. We're going to be mostly based on hips and shoulders because those are kind of the weapons I'm allowed to use to try to move someone in on the field in those sports. So those are always going to be part of our athletic development session. And then I use them very specifically as a specialized warm up before we would do any like collision skills. So before we would go into tackle work, we're going to do some push pull battle games. So I'm kind of like, getting the body switched on, getting that core, that balance, that spatial awareness, like kind of queued up a little bit so that when we go into our, our tackle work, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're ready for that. And we're also building that those underpinnings. And, and I really think it helps, like I said, a better performance when, like I said, just like doing a good warm up in the weight room or hitting your warm up sets on the bar. Like we try not to jump to, you know, 90%. So it's like, let's try not to do like, Hey, 
uh, do your hamstring kicks, do your lunges, right? Great dynamic warm up, not running into each other full speed. Like, whoa, <laughs> there, there, there was a jump. Like, maybe I should do a little bit of that to get myself moving. Yeah, it it makes sense in the, and I think about it, like what you're saying, it's like there's things that you have to feel that you can't just intellectually explain to somebody. Like anything with grappling, anything with feeling your rib cage in space. Think about even so many fast 40-yard, 20-yard, 10-meter fly times come right after playing if you're playing like a soccer game or something you know and then all right we're playing soccer now go run the 10 flyer now go run the 40 instead of a typical all right we're going to do all these a skips and b skips and linear lunges and all these you know all these things that are a little bit more that could be very intellectual on their own it's like all right here pick this drill now do it just like this put your arm and leg here and then versus hey go play soccer <laughs> and now it's and it's not like you're thinking about that stuff while you're playing soccer but your body is doing so much of what it needs to automatically and it's just a lot of this stuff is automatic and that's what the the beauty of it it's not it's not complicated it's like wired into us and and we call them you know like primers and like we talk about you know kind of getting the body you know queued up and ready to go like i do think there's some nervous system stuff but about like when the bandwidth of the warm-up is really small versus like when i get into this push-pull grapple thing like there's other aspects that are being engaged and lit up. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. and the, now I'm, I'm, it's not just my hip flexor and my hamstring because I did, you know, this purely linear sprint thing. And yes, I want those fully ready to go, but I feel like I'm, I'm also getting to some other stuff here that's helping to light me up. And like, I, again, you just, I feel good. I feel ready. I, like I'm ready to go. Why? Cause I, I did some cool stuff that like, you know, got into other areas that, that now I'm, I'm cued on. I'm feeling different parts of my body like a little bit better like you said I'm, I'm really locked into where i'm at you know to your point about like you know are you feeling your rib cage are you feeling your arms like i remember the first time as a college athlete when like i would we were doing you know like conditioning work or whatever but like i f- could actually feel that i was like pushing back you know and it felt like the turf was bunching behind my foot on the acceleration phase it was like People have told me this for six years, and I still remember the light bulb moment because it was during conditioning. It wasn't even a sprint day, but I was like, oh, my gosh, like I'm actually feeling that drive back through my forefoot. Like in a, I'm feeling and it was like it was a huge light bulb moment for me. And so those moments are are massive, I think, for everyone. And even if you don't consciously make the connection the way I did because I was 20 years old. Like that repetition in that database still allows for those unconscious things before, because at the end of the day, we're answering the question, have I been there before? And it's like, oh, yeah, like that, that is a huge bridge to cross. Yeah, to learn things as well, even, um, you know, with the role, you mentioned the rolling, (laughs) I think about things that are learned that are difficult to teach or process, like intellectually, like would you tell someone, teach someone a roll or a dive roll and say, all right, you're going to put this segment of your spine on the ground, then you're going to put this on the ground, then you're going to, that you wouldn't, you, you have, there's, it's just, it operates under a little different context. And I, I think it's interesting. A lot of times people assume because someone went to a university or has a certification that, well, they're going to be able to fix this thing. And it's like, well, this thing isn't just, there is intellectual, you know, training design and creating constraints and leading the athlete. Like, there's a lot of intellectual things that go in that process, but the whole base of the pyramid was a lot of things that you didn't intellectualize, intellectualize that you that you just felt and did, and maybe you had those like Satori like Eureka moments, like you were saying with the figuring out what your foot was doing in the sprint and things like that. And so I, 
I just find that interesting that the way that we often approach things versus how we, you know, the, the natural learning uh, process that happens. I think a great example of that is kind of our agility stuff where space and timing is is completely to me like it's a personal thing based on how explosive I am, right? Hey, I'm really muscular driven. You're really bouncy and kind of tendon driven or, you know, using the stereotypes. And like, so the space in which we need to initiate our cut is going to be different because I'm slow and I'm that big push guy and you're just super bouncy. Okay, awesome. So we all have different space and timing. So can a coach like coach my space and timing? Well, he can help guide me through the process, but like I kind of got to learn some of those things. And you can teach me the jump cut, the crossover step, the, you know, the plant and go, the, you know, I, you know, the three step, the triangle, the goose, all the fancy things we talk about. But at the end of the day, like I have to learn to put that into practice at variable speeds and variable timings. And my cues for that are spatial. Like based on what I'm what I'm seeing, what I'm reading, how fast I'm moving, how fast you're moving, and what my capabilities are. Well, that makes it sound really confusing. Like it's unlearnable. We go, no, it's actually really, really learnable. Mm-hmm. You know what you got to do? You got to do it. Like you got to. <laughs> yeah. Like we should be every practice for every sport should be having some sort of one-on-one box drill where it's like you beat that person, you try to mm-hmm. stay in front of them, and that's it. And like, we should be doing that. I think in every sport, every day, like we just, people just need repetitions because most sports at the end of the day, we call it tracking and evasion, but like, can I evade you? And can you track me down and stay in front of me? Whether that's any field sport in transition, whether that's football in a one-on-one situation or a tackle situation, whether that's basketball players doing it while trying to dribble at the end of the day, like those are the things we're trying to do, right? Create space, close down space, evade my opponent, track and close the opponent. But that's the thing we we probably train least. And we often train the tools, i.e. like this cut. We're going to use this spin move. We're going to use this jump cut. But the timing aspect is the absolute key. Hmm. And to your point earlier, that's one of those things that we can't really intellectualize. Like yeah. it's a concept that I can guide you around and, you know, Hey, you got to do that earlier. Hey, you know, try to do it later. You gave him too much time to recover, but ultimately you have to know that your spacings and the only way you do that is experiential. So lots of tracking evasion games, like with a ball, without a ball, you know, like I do tons of football stuff and people are always ask like, why don't you use a ball? And I'm like, cause that's the least important aspect mm-hmm. is what, what, you know, the guy has a ball or not. It's about, can, can I stay in front of him? Can I close down this space? Like you could carry anything, you know what I mean? If you, but at the end of the day, if I have that skill set, like I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. So it's a great example of like a physical development thing that you can't really teach. You have to create environments and then exposure for, but also as a huge underpinning thing, because I could give you all the tackle technique in the world. If you can't win the space and get there in the first place, like you're, you're going to be in trouble or, Hey, This guy, you know, sometimes your best athletes are not your best open field runners in football or rugby because like their their spacing and timing is just off. They always cut too early and give people time to recover. They they always cut too late and they're already in the contact situation. People are scratching their heads like measurement wise. This is like an elite athlete speed, agility, change of direction. Well, yeah, but he, he like he can't really read the play and his timing is just terrible. So he's only average in the open field. Well, how do we fix that? You got to give him a bunch of open field opportunities and let him learn how to actually win 
it was one-on-ones or two-on-ones. Yeah. You know, I was going to say too, with the like warming up without the ball or doing a lot of work without the ball, I think back to one, just even working with youth soccer. I mean, half of our practices without a soccer ball, just because for that age, if you put a soccer ball, it's too much information. There's too much noise and they don't really truly get to be as much of athletes as they can. So just even just playing freeze tag with that age is way better from a like just making sure they they get their athleticism in before we get to work with the ball. But I, I even think to like, all right, when I was playing high school basketball, what if we would have played like Powerball? Like we talk about American Gladiators that we were talking about with that, like Jeremy Frisch, that's one of his favorite games. And I've been starting to do that more with my kids. We'll put buckets out in the yard and, you know, they'll try to score on the buckets. And it's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's so cool too. Like I watch, I watch kids play soccer, like five, six, seven-year-olds play. And I think the parents get frustrated. It's like, oh, why isn't my kid more aggressive? Why aren't they running faster or something? It's like, it's because there's too much information. They they aren't able to perceive and feel like safe enough and confident enough in their perception to sprint at full speed. But when you just put buckets out, go score on the bucket, now they can't. And I think about, you know, a definition of strength, you could say, is just simply when we reduce the degrees of freedom in the movement. Like, like just a deadlift. There's not a lot of degrees of freedom. You can activate a lot of muscle mass. But even in sport, all right, let's take some of the complex elements out of, out of this. And I think about, well, if in basketball, what if we war- would have warmed up with Powerball for 15 minutes, you know, before we got into playing? I wonder what the practice would have been like if we would have done something like that first instead of, all right, you're going to dribble around and shoot around and do these drills. And, you know, like I'm sure there was some things we were working on, but to make things really dynamic. All right, first, you're going to do this thing that defies my intellectual explanation on some level. It brings in the biopsychosocial, you could say too, that just competitive, having fun drive. And all right, now let's play. <laughs> or something like, as long as you're not too tired. It just makes no, sense. Well, there's there's a the concept, and I, be, I, I think I stole it from PE, and I think this is what the, the coaches that I, or the teachers that I follow call it, but the idea of the instant activity. That like when you come in the door, right? Like, when you have to line up and take role, like class goes one way. When you have your instant activity where like when you come in the door, we start like and it's 2v2 and then it's 3v3 and we just start adding people in. But there's like an instant game. And I go back to that, like that spark, that light up, like there's just something about that that can change the complete dynamic of, of a practice for sure. I know football coaches use like a high contact competitive period often right after warm up early in practice like as a as a spark like hey mm-hmm. the work day like we're going to do this little one on one battle game you know and everyone's in a circle and you've seen it everyone's cheering and this and that oftentimes that's the first thing done at practice and then you go do all your work but the cult the culture the environment the energy on that day compared to the day yes. that it's like that really slow build up is completely different is there a time and place for the slow build up like absolutely and you're trying, maybe you're low day, keeping volume mm-hmm. down. I don't know. Like, there's all sorts of reasons why it could be. But yeah, those spark moments, like, absolutely. And, and I love that instant activity situation. And we're going back to the overstructural thing again. Like, that's a great example where it's like instant activities and, and pickup games or moderately ruled games that allow for a lot of creativity and, and kind of exploration as opposed to super structured games are like it's amazing if you add that at, at your practice to start your practice like you know what it what the rest of it looks like instead of having to like okay well it's practice time now so what's funny to me <laughs> when official practice time starts like all of a sudden people stop moving and start standing in line because it has to be 
it's practice. And then, <laughs> yeah. you know, and so like, you know, that the last 10 minutes before the whistle blew, like you had unadulterated activity and through the professional's eye, you had amazing tracking and evasion and you had ball skills and sharing. And, you know, Jeremy talks a lot about the psychological side, like kids will change teams if they're on, if the, if the teams are unfair, because yes, people want to win, but they also understand like competition and competitive balance. And so like they switch players around, they do little things like they make it this really great game. And if you step back from like, is this soccer or is this football, you can start to ID all these physical development concepts. But as soon as practice starts, we get, you know, the, the as, as Joe Eisman says, the three L's, lines, laps, lectures, like <laughs> we're, we're, we're in it. You know what I mean? And it's like they were just doing that super cool stuff. Like, and you can add some more structure because you have specific goals, but the lines and lectures come because practice started. And I've always been fascinated by that aspect. And I think some of it might be like, oh, well, if the parents see this crazy thing, they're yeah. going to think like, I'm not. I'm not a serious coach or this isn't real. You know what I mean? Like we're just playing. And some of that is probably the broader communication about one, the true benefit of it from like a PE physical development strength coach standpoint. But then I'll also hark back to like the, yeah, we are artificially creating some of the experiences that you may have had naturally as a kid, because a lot of these kids are coming in with maybe deficient movement libraries because they're just a little more sheltered. Yeah, man, the three L's. Uh, that's great. I was just thinking about uh, like if if people were afraid of parents, because and I I agree. I, it's it's just so funny how it's almost like we have this outward perception as a collective of what practice should be, but inside everyone knows that play is where it's at. I, I I feel like if you had the parents and you had a member of the sports staff whose job was actually to take the parents off to the side and do like a Frank Ferencic style movement, like fun class with them, <laughs> maybe partially as a distraction, but also to be like, hey, you see how fun and engaging this is? Like, hey, that's what we're doing with these athletes. Isn't this amazing? And and uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll finish with this question just because I think it's funny. Well, and before actually I ask it, I I love that initial introductory activity too. It, it makes me think as well about Jeremy Frisch has, t- has talked about this I, probably more than once uh, on my podcast, but how his athletes, if he just lets them go, they're coming in and they'll just start wrestling or playing tag. It's like, that's you, you're coming into a room full of kids and like, hey, everyone's wrestling and playing tag. Well, I'm going to do that too, you know? And he'll, he'll just say, he'll just let him go because that's that introductory activity and there, that stimulation is so substantial. And I just think that's really cool. So last uh, last question here. So if someone made you like the um, arbitrator of practice in terms of lines, <laughs> how long would you say the line? Like, what's the longest line? Because I've seen lines of of twelve kids before, and I'm like, man, this one kid isn't going to get to the skill for like another three minutes. <laughs> I'm just kind of curious what your if you had an arbitrary number on line length. Any thoughts on what that might be? So it's actually funny. So I coached my son's youth football team. I was an assistant coach because of my travel schedule last year. Uh, and it's the first time I'd ever coached under the collegiate level. So all my coaching up to that point had been collegiate professional athletes. And so now I'm going down to third graders. And I think I wrote in the blog that like three people was the most I'd ever have in a line because any more than that in the back two started like pushing and shoving and like, you know, <laughs> doing their their own little things and i'm all for rough house play but like when you're trying to i don't know keep keep pace and keep the drill like at least 
active, like you need the next person to be ready to jump in so that like we can keep the pace high. And so I said, like my, my, the coach that I worked with and I, we, there was two of us. So the first thing we would do every day is we split up into two groups, like, which is not rocket science, but I'd see the teams practicing next to us because we had a shared field and there'd be three coaches around one drill with all of the athletes and all three coaches around all, you know, 12 athletes right there on that block in the field behind us, all 12 athletes in one drill, all three coaches, they're all watching the same thing. They're all doing the same thing. We would split from the, as soon as warm up was done, we would split and it would be like, all right, you're going to do blocking. I'm going to do tackling. Like you're going to do passing and catching. Like I'm going to be doing uh, the evasive running, you know, running back stuff. But so like just from the start, we had two groups, right? And I, simple. I will say, I think the reason people do that is there is this belief that coaches need to see every rep. Mm. How can I correct and fix it? If I'm not watching every rep of every athlete, <laughs> as opposed to some of that more organic, like it's okay to only provide feedback every, every third repetition and let them try to figure it out themselves. Like, and, you know, let them learn from their mistakes or let them, you know, just kind of go through the process. Yes. My coaching cues are a guide, but the idea that like all three of us need to see every rep so that we can offer all the cues and all the lectures to fix this kid is like the misnomer of yeah. of skill learning. So we would we would split up into two groups. And then for me, like I said, I if I had my six, like we would always be in two or three groups so that like my lines were only ever two or three. So I don't be set up in a triangle. Like I would never have them in one line of six. And I tried not to ever have them in two lines of four, like depending on the split up that day. I would much rather go to multiple shorter lines and say like, you know, so hey, we're gonna have four lines of two and like, you know, I'll have pop back and forth between drill box, you know what I mean? Like, or, or you will be in a triangle rotation, but just because one kids hate standing around too. They're also third graders. I'm a hundred percent realistic of like their attention span and they're going to push and shove and they're going to, I don't know, talk about a new video game and this and that. So we'll keep short lines. We'll keep really quick. Like the idea that like we're going to coach on the run, you know what I mean? A couple points here, a couple points there. Hey, did you see what Johnny did? Like, that's awesome. Like, you know what I mean? Like a great feat. Everyone tried to do that. Like, that's it. The amount of times I saw activities stopped for like the grandioso lecture was just like, you know, astronomical where it's like, we have to learn by doing at some point. I, I've, I always say I could rate myself highly as a coach. I could give the best explanation ever. I can do a great demonstration and how many reps is it going to take that youngster to figure it out in their own body? And it's like, so there's, that's the learning kind of gap is that even though we've done everything perfect, like there's, they have to accumulate so many repetitions. Our great athletes normally get it in two. They got one, they had a little mistake. Oh yeah, my feet were funny. Next time they got it, right? And those are the guys like, that's why they're an elite athlete because mm -hmm. they can self-correct that movement scale in two reps. And then, you know, some guys or gals, it takes forever for them to lock in. But once they lock in, like it's, they're great. So like, I don't panic when the, I expect the first couple reps to be bad. My coaching cues that I use all the time on early repetitions of a new thing are like, you know what I mean? Like, Hey, first time, like you're figuring out, here we go. Like add it again, see if you can find it. You know, the things like that, see if you can find it. Hmm. Like, you know, you're fine. First rep, no worries. You know, hey, just like that, just try to do it a little bit better. 
like a little, you know, a little prod, a little joke, but it's not like over coaching the, yeah. like, Hey, I just gave you the technical model and I demonstrated the technical model. Now <laughs> your little knucklehead third grade brain is trying to make your neurons tell your muscles to do that. That's a process. And so like, I'd rather have more repetitions with slight oversight, like, you know, coaching on the run, a cue here, a cue there, and plenty of space for self-exploration and no feedback other than like, you know what I mean? Good, great effort. Uh, you'll get it next time. You know what I mean? Here we go. Just try to clean that up, but not even specific, you know, things where I think, I don't know if you've heard the ABC analogy, which is kind of big in, in football coaching and maybe creeped into the football weight room, but always be coaching, <laughs> always be coaching, never, never waste a rep. And I'm just like, but like, <laughs> If you had a teacher that was like that, you would hate them. You know what I mean? Like you'd never have time to explore and actually grasp the concept because you're always getting told like, you know, over and over again, this is, this is too much in info. So yeah, scale it, let it go, fix it, you know, fix it. If it's a disaster, maybe you do need to step in, but most of the time it's just the natural learning process. Yeah. I just think so much of that coach as a facilitator, you know, you're helping the athlete in their journey. You're not dictating their journey to them. And there's, I'm sure oh. we could talk about that for a good portion of the show. Sadly, I, I've run out of time here, Andy, but to get a little bit more to the messy side, maybe we can come back and talk about that, that messy side of coaching. And you just shared about that a lot, but thank you so much for coming on. It was great talking to you. Uh, you got me excited for next uh, soccer season and as well as um, all my other coaching ses coaching sessions. So, I appreciate you, man. Always a pleasure, buddy. Happy to come back. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. I appreciate you being here. If you want to help us out, you can leave us a rating or review on Spotify, iTunes, whatever you're listening to the show on. I'd really appreciate it. We'll see you next week with another great guest.